Where we are now in these next two Sundays is a breaking away from our pastor's few sermons on Samuel. And we're going to do what we've done once or twice before, and that is look at one element of our statement of faith. You will remember some time ago that our pastor spoke, probably a month or six weeks ago, our pastor spoke on what do we believe about God? Who is he? What is his nature? What are his attributes? What is he like? You may remember that particular message, but then again you may not. Uh, We do forget things, don't we? You certainly won't remember that about a year, a year and a half ago, I preached a uh, four-sermon series on the Bible. What is the Bible all about? Where do we, uh, how do we stand in relationship to the Bible and so on? And I believe that these two statements belong where they are in the very beginning of our statement of faith. We need to begin with our belief in who is God and what is he doing. And then we need to talk about the Bible because the Bible is our source of all knowledge regarding God and what he wants us to know. They're all we need to know about God and they are the necessary place to go to find, about, find out about God for our, the answers to our questions. There's other places we can go. We can read Christian books and we can listen to sermons on the internet and so on. But there's nothing that beats our own attendance to the word of God to find out what it is God wants to say for us, to us. And now we come to the third statement in our statement of faith. It has to do with what is originally called the doctrine of man. That's politically not that correct nowadays. A biblical anthropology which nobody can pronounce, and we now call it our doctrine of the human race, and rightly so. And here in this particular statement, we talk about what we believe, as Christians, the Bible has to say about us as human beings. That we're created in the image of God. We have dignity, we have worth, we have a purpose here. And then the statement goes on to talk about what has gone wrong. And we'll come to all of these things as time goes on. It kind of, the statement does break itself down into two parts quite clearly. I'd like to talk about kind of the good news and the bad news, if I could say that. And so this morning we're only going to be looking at the very first part of this statement. What I might want to call the good news, if you like. One or two things we need to say here. One is that I made every attempt this morning not to turn this into a theology lecture. Um, many years ago, in the deep mists of time, I did do some lecturing in theology at a Bible college down in Cape Town. And um, it was very different because we would probably take on that one statement, we would probably take 10 weeks of one hour lectures and bore ourselves silly. I hope we're not going to do that today. We're just going to spend half an hour looking at it. The other thing we need to say about it is, when we look at a statement of faith that is written by our church fathers, we're not looking at the Bible as such, because they are different degrees of inspiration. This particular statement you see in front of you is not inspired by God, the way the Bible is. It's words of men. We believe they're accurate, we believe they're good, we believe the statement is good, but we can disagree with it. We can say, well, I'd much rather have that word than the other word. It's not an inspired scripture. We just need to remember that as we go through. So this is what we're going to look at this morning then. All men and women being created in the image of God have inherent and equal 
dignity and worth. Their greatest purpose is to obey, worship, and love God. The second part of the statement we will tackle the next Sunday. And to me, this first part of the statement tends to break itself down into three parts very easily as well. The first part, we are created. We need to look at that, but we're not going to have time to talk about all the scientific um, uh, repercussions of that. We are created very specifically with this inherent dignity and worth. And what does that mean? And then we need to look at, in the third place, why were we created? What was the purpose of it all? And once again, we could spend a lot of time on each one of those, but we're not going to. So first of all, then, we are created by God in his image. It's easy to refer to to us as man. I understand that. And I have to ask in advance the uh, forgiveness of every uh, woman in the uh, congregation this morning if occasionally I do that. I talk about man and not people. Forgive me. But I do want to share this verse with you from Genesis chapter 5. The first two verses. And it's not the verse that you... It is the verse you see in front of you. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them. And he named them man. And they are created. All I'm saying is that I just plead for your forgiveness if occasionally I do use that term. But, on the other hand, it does seem to be biblically sound that one could use that word because it is the word that seems to be used in Genesis. So it's theologically and and biblically sound to use that word, but I'll try not to, too often. So what does it mean exactly then when it says we are created in the image of God? Now we know on the Sixth day of creation. After everything else had been done, animals, all the stuff had been created, God says this. Let us create mankind in our image. Notice the plural, us, in our image, reflecting very clearly the Trinity. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. The image of God. He created them. Male and female. He created them. Yes, all of these creatures, only one creature of all creation gets this uh, title. You are in the image of God. But we have to kind of understand what that means. Does it appear that in some way we are like God? And if so, how? You see, the word image in the Hebrew, original Hebrew, speaks of something that is similar to something else, but not exactly like it. But it goes beyond that and says that an image is something that represents something else. It's a representation of something else. So in what way are we something like God, but not entirely like God? In what way are we a representation of him? And I tell you something, this is something that theologians have been debating from the very beginning of the church age. In fact, before that, Jewish scholars, before the coming of Christ, debated this issue exactly of who are people? What are we we really? And not a few have fallen out with one another over this particular topic. And there still today exists many cults and sects who have very strange views about who we are as created beings. But I'm going to suggest there are a number of things that we could look at that suggest um, what we are 
when we talk about being like God in some way. And I'd suggest, first of all, that we are like God morally. We are moral creatures. We are morally accountable to God for our actions. We have, as God has, a sense of what is right and what is wrong that distinguishes us entirely from the rest of the animal creation. Yes, I know your dog knows when he's done something wrong. I understand that. But it's not a very developed sense of right and wrong, believe me. It's not as acute by any means as ours is. We are capable of good behavior and we're capable of bad behavior and we know when we're doing it. Especially those of us who are are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We know clearly when we've done something wrong and done something right. So in that way, morally, we are partly at least in the image of God. Secondly, we are in the image of God spiritually. We not only have a physical body, but we have an immaterial soul or spirit. We can act in the spiritual realm as God acts in the spiritual realm. And it is this spiritual life that we have that allows us to relate to God in activities such as prayer and praise and worship. And it's through the spiritual part of us that we can sense his presence and his guidance. And the spiritual part of us is immortal, can live forever. Thirdly, we are like God in the fact that we have a mind, we have an intellect. We have the ability to reason, as God does, and think logically. More than that, we have a developed consciousness, even a self-consciousness, which is very undeveloped in, in even the, the best of animals. More than that, we can what they call metacognate. In other words, we can even think about what we think. We can step outside of our minds and examine our own thinking. As God can. We have complex language and we can deal with symbols. And we can imagine the future. That's an element of the mental, intellectual image that we have. We are like God, I would submit to you, relationally. We have a sense of family and community far in advance of any of the animal species. In marriage especially, we reflect the nature of God in, as men and women. We, as God created us, we have equal and yet important and different roles. And as with God, we have a special relationship with the rest of creation to rule over it and to care for it. And the last one may shock you slightly, but there is an element to physicality here as well. The fact that we have a physical body shouldn't be taken that God has some form of physical existence. Of course, he did. For a period of some 30-some years as Jesus was here on the earth, he took on physical flesh. But there are still some ways in which our physicality reflects something of God's own character. For example, we we can see his creation. He's given us eyes so that we can see what he wants us to see. He's given us ears so that we can hear what he wants us to hear. And without those, we could not be in any position to live our Christian lives. We are able to represent God in the goodness of our physical behavior. We have a God-given ability to produce and reproduce children in our image 
and therefore to create more human beings in the image of God. And the very fact that we can grow, not only physically but in many other ways, is a reflection of how we um, reflect this wonderful character of God, that, that God, the plan that God has for creation. So there are many ways, I think, and you can, you can, you can take what you like of, of what I've said, but I think there are many ways in which we might, we might say, yes, I can understand why in some ways we are like God. The second part of the statement of faith talks a little bit about being created with inherent and equal dignity and worth. The very fact that we've been created in his image, above any, far above any other item of creation, ought to convince us that we, we do have some kind of special dignity and worth as human beings. It should give us a sense of our significance, if you like. We are not simple specks inhabiting a slightly larger speck in a mere speck of a galaxy in an almost immeasurable universe. That's not what we are. We are individually significant. Every one of us, Christians and not yet Christians alike, have real worth. We're not worthy, but we're not worthless. We have value. We have significance. And this dignity, this value, this worth is both inherent and equal. Our dignity and our worth and our significance don't originate with the surroundings of our physical birth. Every baby born has an inherent dignity and has the same worth as every other. If a baby is born in abject poverty, it doesn't lessen its dignity. Neither does someone being born into privilege give you any greater sense of dignity or worth. The essence of human dignity is that it is never earned, it is inherent, and it is fundamental to who we are as God's children. And it's equal. We have equal worth and dignity. And this is really, really important. It implies that in one very important sense, we are all equal. Long before the inequalities of wealth and health and knowledge come our way. And so we have no right ever to look down on any one of God's created people. Because each one has huge significance. And that has huge significance for us as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We must never forget that even the most sinful, the most fallen of God's created human beings, in whom the image God may have been deeply scarred, still has the status of being created in God's image. Every human being, no matter how much the image of God has been marred in their lives by sin, illness, weakness, age, or any other factor, still has dignity and worth of a person created in the image of God. And I want to say two things in linking with this. This means that every person of every race, of every religion, of every persuasion, of every sexual identity, of every age and every outlook, deserves we treat them with equal dignity 
as we view them as possible citizens of the kingdom of God. And I would say one more thing. This means the elderly, the seriously ill, the mentally disabled, the tiny baby, and I would submit to you the unborn fetus, deserve full protection and honor as human beings created in the image of God. And if we ourselves ever find ourselves denying our own unique status as God's image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life ourselves. We will tend to begin seeing humans as a mere higher form of animal creation, as many do today, and therefore begin to treat others as this is, if, as this is all they are. We see the outcome of this kind of belief in the world today. It's in evidence around us where the sanctity of human life is almost nil. And when we, come, when we come to believe that we are just another stage in this inexorable passage of evolution, we quickly begin to lose any real sense of the meaning of life. And this is a huge dilemma for many people today, particularly many young people that I have spoken to over many years, that life just doesn't seem to have any meaning or any purpose. And when they say that, they're absolutely right. If you believe that all you are is the end of some evolutionary chain, because all you are is a product of time and chance. And God wants so much more from us than that. But we need to ask another question. If we're created in the image of God, and we have this dignity, we have this worth, and it's equal and inherent in us, you know, why? Why did God bother to create us in the first place? Why did he do it? We need to accept, first of all, that God didn't need to create anything at all, let alone mankind. I've heard preachers in this country and other parts of the world say silly things like this. And I'm not one for picking on other preachers. But I've heard somebody say, not that long ago, God had to create us because he was lonely. What nonsense. <laughs> Where do they get this stuff? You know, he doesn't... One of the characteristics, characteristics of God is he's independent. He does not need us or the rest of creation for, for anything. And yet, we can bring him glory and we can bring him joy. Since for all eternity, there was perfect love and fellowship within the three persons of the Trinity. God didn't create us out of loneliness or curiosity or because he somehow needed fellowship with other beings. God doesn't need us. We need to understand that to start with. But then why did he do it? Why on earth would you do it? Well, the short answer is, is very clear from the scriptures. The short answer is, and if I can just switch this on a little bit. The short answer is, he did it for his glory. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, where God is speaking of his sons and daughters from the ends of the earth. And he speaks of them as those of whom I created for my glory. This to me means that we are here as created beings 
with the express purpose of doing everything to the glory of God. And this very fact, uh, to me, guarantees that our lives are significant. It's a wonderful fact. And when we initially realize that God did not need us in any way, we might tend to think of ourselves as insignificant or unimportant. But scripture tells us again and again and again, we are created for his glory. We are all important to God because of that. So what should this purpose be then? It's very easy to say, well, for his glory, but how does that affect us? What does that really mean? Well, our statement of faith has chosen three particular things. They could have said a lot more. They've chosen three particular elements of purpose. And the first one is that our first purpose in life should be to obey God. To obey God. Our greatest purpose is to obey and worship God. Okay? Quite simply, I think our our purpose should be to fulfill the reason that God created us in the first place. If the reason was to glorify him, then our purpose is to glorify him. But how do we do that? How do we do that without it becoming a debilitating burden and not a lot of fun? Well, it's not meant to be an onerous, debilitating burden. In fact, Christ speaking in, in, in the scriptures himself says, I've come to give you life, and life that is hugely abundant. David in the Psalms says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He goes on to say, those who dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and we're going to behold the beauty of the Lord. And This doesn't sound like an onerous, horrible position to be in. It's a pity our statement of faith doesn't quite say that. I wish it did. But we're to obey him. We're to obey him and to worship him and to love him. And once again, we could spend hours talking about that. So let's have a look at uh, our purposes to obey God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, which you've heard me quote on many, many occasions. With Joshua, you remember, it's right at the beginning of the uh, Joshua's taking over from Moses, and he's got all of the people of Israel in front of him. And have you ever wondered how they carried their voices that far in those days without all this stuff? I don't know how they do it. I think there must have been some special divine uh, interruption that these lads were able to shout out to possibly as many as several million people. Don't ask me how. I don't know. I can barely get my voice to the end of this room. Keep this book of the law, he says. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that it says. Everything that it says. Then you'll be prosperous and successful, he says. Obedience is all about our attitude to scriptures. And we to speak it and read it and meditate it and so on, as he says here. And we will get this prosperity and success. And that's not to say prosperity and success is always going to be in material terms. It may be. In fact, the Bible talks far more about the dangers of wealth than it does about the pleasures of it. We're to obey God because obeying God will, will enable us to do many things. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24, we read, Everyone who hears these words of mine... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the man or woman who builds his, her, house upon a... Did I get that right? House upon a rock? I'm so nervous of this sometimes. 
if you, if, you, if you hear the words of the Lord, hear his words, you put them into practice, that's the obedience, you build a house on a sound foundation. So here, obedience is linked to wisdom. And the pastor said to us the other night at the AGM, he's hoping to, whether that's him or me, hasn't told me yet, to start to do a bit of preaching in some of the wisdom areas of, of Scripture, from the book of Proverbs, for example, that type of thing. The Bible makes much of wisdom. And that's what happens when we obey God. Obedience is not a trendy word today. And in a sense, it's a little bit sad, because when the word obedience is used, it, it seems to reflect some kind of awful subservience, some reluctant undertaking to follow someone else's foolish demands. You know, whether that be a parent or a teacher or a manager or a police officer. We don't do obedience. We do freedom. We do rights. We do standing up for ourselves. We do independence. But the Bible is very, very clear. When it comes to God and his word, we do obedience. And sometimes that will feel challenging when it is clear that we need to make changes in our lifestyle. Maybe we need to, I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure, um, cut out some of the television programs we watch. Maybe reduce our intake of certain things. Maybe we need to start being warm and friendly to people we don't like. Maybe we need to give up certain things to find more time for the things of God. And it can, it can feel burdensome. But it need not always be like that. As we grow to maturity, as you grow in your Christian life, and I thank God for 55 years of being a Christian, and when we fall deeper and deeper in love with our Savior, the duties become more delightful. The sacrifices become sweet. And the burdens become blessings. So our Purpose is to obey God. Our purpose is also to worship God. The psalmist says, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And I chose that verse because I think it puts it into context. Worship is about acknowledging the greatness of and the worship of God. We acknowledge his immensity and his holiness by bowing down and kneeling, prostrating ourselves in an attitude of humiliation before him. That's what worship is. And I feel sometimes we miss that. We become maybe a little bit too familiar in what we say and how we say it and what we sing and how we sing it. The act of kneeling, for example, seems to have fallen away for some reason. And most of our Protestant churches anyway today are not equipped for it. Try kneeling here, you'll bump your head. I quite like kneeling. It's a getting up that's more difficult than anything else. But it is better on my back. I just can't get up again. But whether you kneel actually or metaphorically, it's about recognizing who God is and where he stands in relation to us. Jesus in the book of John says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus develops this theme, and he reminds us that God is like us, but in other ways he's not like us. He is spirit. He's not a physical being as we understand physicality. 
He is spirit in their spirit. He can be everywhere. He can be out there running the universe and in this room meeting our needs. Or alongside your bedside, listening to your prayers. There's reference here, I believe, to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who works through us and in us as we worship. It is he who softens our hearts, who fills us with joy or humility as we worship, who admonishes us or delights us. And the verse says that we must worship him in spirit. Now that can be with a capital S or a small s, it doesn't really matter. And in truth. Both of these translations are possible. So, you know, apart from the physical aspects of worship, which might be kneeling down or raising your hands or whatever you do, using your voice, we are to worship in spirit with a capital S. In other words, we worship acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Or we worship in spirit with a small s, which means with enthusiasm and with a certain amount of emotion. And we are to worship him in truth. And that means our worship must be scripturally correct in truth. The acts we perform, the words we sing, the way we pray, what we pray for must be truth. And worship, I believe, must never be out of balance. Because if it's out of balance and it becomes just truth and no spirit, then it becomes a cold, formal, mental act. And you've been to churches where that's what it is, right? If it's out of balance the other way, it becomes a very warm, emotional, but unthinking and scripturally careless act. The balance must always be right. And I think generally we get that right. And finally, our purpose is to love God. Our purpose is to love God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is addressing this, another man with a bigger voice, addressing this whole crowd of the people of Israel. In chapter 5, he repeats the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 6, he comments on these commandments. And he goes on and does a lot more teaching. Our verse, if you like, is a summary of the first four commandments. It also incitates a very close relationship between loving God and the other two words, obeying him and worshipping him. We're to worship, we're to love him in heart, soul and strength. That means we're to worship him spiritually, emotionally, intellectually and physically. Because love is not just a feeling, it's about truth and about action. And this has always been and always will be the search and the quest of every Christian. And that's to answer the question, just how do I show that I love God? How do I show God that I love him? Have you found that difficult sometimes? It's not that difficult to say to somebody else, well, I love you and show the evidence. How do you evidence to God that you love him? With your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. I think Jesus makes it easier for us, as we'll see. We find the answer to this in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister, here we have some of the strongest language in all of scriptures, 
Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. And while while this verse seems to be making things even more difficult, almost impossible, I believe God is actually doing us a favor here. In a sense, I sense him saying this to us. I think God is saying to us, I know you find loving me hard to explain, hard to describe, sometimes hard to feel because you can't see, hear, or touch me. So let me make it a little easier. Show your love to me by loving one another. As Francis Schaeffer puts it in the title of his book, this is the mark of the Christian. Jesus puts it, a new command I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's abundantly clear that the identifying mark of the Christian and the Christian church is not doctrine. It's not what we believe. It's not even evangelism, what we say. It is love, how we behave towards one another. That's unbelievably challenging. What's more, if we are seen not to be a loving, caring community of believers, the world out there has every right to say to us, sorry, I don't believe in you or your God. We have much to do here. Our lack of love will always preach against everything we say we believe. And the men and women and young folk who would have every right to walk away and go and find another place where people really do seem to like one another, love one another. And our history as a church in this world over 2,000 years has not always seemed to be the most attractive place to find help and guidance and meaning. And folk have gone elsewhere, to other religions, to sects, where they claim to find a closer sense of community. And that's a massive indictment. We simply must, here in Staines, in this church, in like-minded churches, in 2019, simply ask God to empower us to love one another in a way that is real and that is visible. So... I really don't have a specific application, but I would ask you to go and reflect again on what we've been saying. We are created in God's image. We are like him in certain ways, and that makes us significant. We are not just endpoints in creation. We are, we are specific creations. We are made with a specific purpose. We are like God, such such that no other creature is like God. And that makes us significant, and that should give us great joy in our hearts. And we are equal in dignity and in worth with every other created man, woman, and child on this planet. And we mustn't forget that. 
Sometimes we as Christians can get a little bit high in the clouds about this kind of thing and think of ourselves as being somehow somewhere else. We're not. We're all on the same plane here. And our greatest purpose is to glorify God. And how do we do that? By obeying, by worshipping in spirit and truth, and by loving God. And this way we honour him. Father, we ask you today to give us a sense of who we are. Give us a sense of your love for us in that you created us in the first place when you didn't need to. Put joy in our hearts that we are your special people. Father, we pray that those of us who claim to know you as Lord and Savior might in this week ahead be very aware to think about obedience, to think about worship, and to think about love. That it becomes not just a Sunday thing, but a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday thing as well. That each day we would obey you more, we would worship you more, and we would love you more deeply. Implant these things upon our hearts, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.